0: everyone. Welcome back to Both Sides of the Stethoscope. This is Episode 7. I am Dr. Colby Salerno here with my co-host, Dr. Aline Gregosian. Hi, everyone. And today we're excited. We're going to be interviewing another solid organ transplant recipient, but this one is going to be interesting because he practices in infectious disease. We're here today with Dr. Steve Pergam. Hey, Steve. Welcome on. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, we're we're happy to have you. I don't know if you've listened at all to the podcast, but I've actually mentioned a couple times my nervousness with working in infectious disease <laughs> as an immunocompromised person, um, and here you are doing that exact thing. So I'm very interested to pick your brain today.
1: It's incredible, um, Steve. Yeah, sure. You're one you're one of like our role models in transplant medicine in many ways.
2: Well, thank you both. I, you know, I obviously have listened to a number of your episodes, and it's it's uh, really a highlight for me to be here. Um, such a, an interesting place to be for all of us, I think, in positions where uh, we're, you know, both immunocompromised and also taking care of patients. So I think an important important thing for everybody to be, a, to be aware of.
0: Right. Yeah. So before we get into, you know, I think the hot topic of the last couple of years in terms of infectious disease, um, <laughs> I'm interested to hear, sure. you know, what initially made you want to become a doctor?
2: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I had, both my parents are physicians, and I think that was sort of a sort of a natural fit that you know eventually I might do something like that. But I definitely explored a lot of other things. I was a I was an art major in college and taught art for a year after I finished. Um, so I, I definitely it wasn't necessarily something that I felt like I had to do, uh, but it just it felt like the right fit for a career. I think I'd always sort of known a little bit about from from talking about medicine at the dinner table as a, as a kid and getting kind of excited about science. I really liked you know, the science and the other aspects of the training to get to, to medical school. And it, I don't know, it just felt like a natural fit. I don't know, and it's kind of hard to go back and sort of imagine like why anyone decides to do what they do, but I think that was probably the biggest thing uh, for me.
1: I know you're a kidney transplant recipient. Did you um, get your kidney mm-hmm. when you were younger or more recently? And was it due to chronic kidney yeah, disease? Yeah. So,
2: yeah. So I, uh, when I was in high school, I developed um, a post-viral kidney disease. Um, so don't really know the, the etiology. Um, never will probably know what the etiology was. But after getting a cold, about two to three weeks later, started to have some leg swelling, and was found to be in a, acute renal failure and um was able to get on treatment right away with some immunosuppressive therapy initially. and that sort of kept me going for about fifteen, sixteen, seventeen years. and i got I got transplanted actually when i was had um, finished med school, had been a full-time attending for a couple of years afterwards. and that was prior to my training in infectious disease. and it was kind of a slow, progressive process where mm-hmm you know, I got to the point where it just got harder and harder to manage the fatigue and other things that we eventually just decided that's what I should do. I got a living related uh, transplant from my mother.
0: That's incredible. Um, that's like our previous kidney transplant recipient that we had on here, Dr. Ken Sutha, uh, who received it from his father. So again, um, I (laughs) always have to give shout outs to a living donor. That's amazing. Um, for, for your mom to have been a yeah. living donor, such a hero <laughs> in my eyes. So you said that you yeah, were. To, our, to, every, to everyone's eyes, I would say. Yeah, yeah exactly. And to all <laughs> yeah, living donors absolutely. out there and even all um, deceased yeah. donors, uh, organ donors in general are all heroes mm-hmm. as we all three can attest to. Absolutely. So in terms of you were already attending. Um, so what got you interested mm-hmm. into infectious disease? Was it the fact you had gotten sick that led to, you know, your kidney disease or was it something else? No, it, it, you know, it'd been something I'd really been
2: interested in. So when I finished residency, or yeah, when I finished residency, I sort of decided that I wanted to spend some time doing general medicine for a while before I decided to go do a, a fellowship if I decided to. And I'd, I'd spent a lot of time when I was in medical school um, in, I I'd, I'd spent a bit of time working in Nicaragua um, during summers. Um, and got really interested in seeing the different infections when I was working in Central America. And I'd always found that when I was on clinical service, that the infections were sort of the most interesting to me. And I think after teaching for a few years as a general medicine attending, as a sort of a hospitalist, I found that there was really nothing that was that I was the expert in, and I decided that it was time to to go back. And so it was a little hard because, you know, I was, in a, I was an assistant professor at the time, and getting close to becoming an associate professor actually when I went back to fellowship and started from ground zero again. But it felt like it was the right decision. I did a, I did a small research project on West Nile virus when I was in, as an attending, and that really sort of caught the research bug for me and really made me decide I wanted to pursue going into infectious disease. I will say, you know, I thought about it a lot because of, you know, the fact that I had had a kidney transplant and what that meant. But it really felt like the right decision in the right field. And so I was pretty excited to, to join it. And then I came here to,
0: to Washington to do my fellowship. That's awesome. Um, I love infectious diseases. And I think if I didn't have such a connection personally with cardiology, it's definitely where I would have ended up after medical training. <laughs> Once... I personally
1: don't love infectious diseases, Kobe. <laughs> like...
0: I love the specialty, not the diseases. Let me clarify. <laughs> Um, I've had a, I've dealt with a number of infectious diseases, and I can say for sure that I hate them. Shout out CMV and CMV. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think I think, yeah, <laughs> I think, I
2: think um, part of it is, I think there's this sense from transplant patients and transplant, you know, people who are engaged in transplant. I actually the field that I work on primarily is transplant infectious disease, but I don't uh, focus on solid organ transplant. I focus on cancer patients and bone marrow transplant patients more. But I think part of what, what I find um, interesting is ah as a person who is immunosuppressed working in the infectious disease field, I've heard from a lot of people that, you know, aren't you nervous or scared or, you know, worried that you're going to get something from patients and that potential interaction. My comment is always the same. I just assume that everyone I'm meeting it has an infection. And so I'm even more doubly prepared because I know that I'm being consulted for somebody who has a fever. I know that I'm going in to see someone who has a cough, who might have tuberculosis. So I, I think it, in some ways, everyone I'm seeing is a potential risk if you want to, sit, if you want to put it that way. So I don't, I don't necessarily worry as much on a day-to-day basis uh, because my assumption is that everyone I'm seeing is infectious. I would say someone like Aylin, You know, so some sometimes they think about the ER being really hard because you don't know who has specific conditions when they walk in the door. In my situation, I know I'm dealing with that in most situations. So it's just a different experience. And, it's, and I think every physician and everyone who works in the field of medicine has the potential to come into contact with somebody. And it's just a matter of being cautious all the time when you have an immunosuppressed um, condition.
1: Yeah, I totally I, I agree with you on the ER. For the ER, I tell people mm-hmm. that you don't know what people have, which is kind of how you should be in life in general when, when you're immunocompromised. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when people ask me, they're like, how are you doing critical care? And I said, well, it's, it's kind of better than being in the ER cause in critical care, at least you know what your patients have for the most part. Um, and even if you don't, you're, you're still mm-hmm. very protected. So even when I was working in the ER, I did the same yeah. thing.
2: Yeah. And I think that's very similar. You know I mean? I think, and you know, a lot of the infections our patients get aren't necessarily contagious. I mean, so a lot of them are, um, you know, people we can help. I think what, what I like about the field is that I can give patients treatment and see them and so that feels very satisfying. So it's, it's just a different, I think, a different mentality in how you approach it. I, I love the fact that I get to work in, in a space that is related somehow to the work or that my history. I don't like to directly, you know, I didn't go into nephrology because I didn't really want to address um, you know, kidney disease and see it on a daily basis necessarily. But being somehow related to the field by working in transplant ID is really interesting. And I think it provides a really different insight um, to taking care of patients. That's incredibly unique. I'm not like Ken, who you know have a, has kidney disease and sees and works as a nephrologist. I just I really enjoy being you know around that space and seeing people who are immunosuppressed and working with the immunosuppressed community. It's it's a really it's a link that really I think helps me stay grounded and helps me give back to a community that has really given me so much along the way.
0: Did you notice a change at all in how you interacted with patients or how much you relied on your own um, experiences once you had been transplanted? You know, I don't think so because, you know, I'd always, since I was
2: younger, since I was about 17, I'd always been on some immunosuppressive therapy because when I initially developed kidney disease, I started on immunosuppressive therapy and I was on it for Years and years and years prior to my transplant, so I always was the same went through med med school with the same sort of process um, and through residency with the same process. And so I think I've always sort of treated it the same. I think it's just given me a different insight into you know sort of being a patient and understanding how uncomfortable that can be. And I think that's a real insight that, you know, many physicians don't have initially when they start, but eventually I think everyone has their own crosses to bear from that perspective. And it changes how you are as a physician, but I, I was lucky enough in some ways that I had, um, I had this for a long time. So it, I think it's helped me throughout my, my training.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. And, you know, being sick from, for me, since the age of 12, I too think it's always, it's just something that's now been a part of my life. That's always cha- you know, affected how I interact with patients. So moving into yeah. the, the hot topic, I, th- I don't think you can be an infectious disease doctor and not get asked about COVID. So when COVID, you know, started, you are taking care of immune-compromised transplant patients. You are one yourself. Did it change anything about your day-to-day work, or was it kind of just a adapt-and-see approach? I, I think there's no way that anyone can tell you that it didn't change how they worked.
2: Whether you were immunosuppressed or not, I think the difference was in the initial phases. Um, everyone was terrified. You know, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say terrified, but everybody was very worried about what this meant and the risks for themselves. I mean, we had we had people that we worked with very closely that you know were uncomfortable and would state as such to see patients that were COVID positive because of their concerns. Um, and I think being immunosuppressed, you know, I I sort of trusted the protective equipment that I had and I knew it was important to take care of patients. And so I did, you know, a lot of the first few months um, since I work um, primarily at the cancer center and in a role as the director of infection prevention, I I wasn't directly seeing patients because I was developing policies and um, creating places for people to come get tested and, um, you know, doing a lot of the administrative policy and, and work to get, Um, the center prepared and be dealing with this, And it was a little weird because, you know, we were the first, right? So Seattle was where it started. And um, so we didn't have a playbook necessarily that we could work with um, that others had seen and used. And so it was was kind of every day coming up with new policies and writing new guidance. Um, So it was really interesting from that time frame. But, you know, taking care of COVID patients, you know, I think part of it was, knowing when they were positive made it a lot, again, similar to the same process. It made it a lot easier for me to trust the the protective equipment I had and, and to work with those patients um, so that I could give them the best care possible. I don't think any of us really um, went into those situations feeling um, 100% comfortable all the time, but you know, it's also part of our job and, and we had to do it. So we all did. Um, I would say people like you know that my colleagues worked in the ICU and other places where it was, you know, much more regimented. I think those could be, be very stressful situations. Um, the ones that I really dealt with were, were patients on the floor who were you know suppressed themselves dealing with COVID more than than other groups. Um, so it, it was, but it was challenging. I mean, it was it was a hard time I think for everybody. And I think I, I don't. I would say it's gotten easier as we've gotten moved forward, but it. I don't think it's completely as though um, we feel as protected as our colleagues do at this point.
0: Yeah, and at this point we're now over a year and a half or so from definitely when it arrived in Seattle and I forget that year in Seattle where it was the first place it really you know was all over the news. Are you you know just because you have such a unique role in terms of disease prevention and, and all that, are you feeling mm-hmm. optimistic where we are a year and a half later or still kind of pessimistic? Yeah, it's
2: really hard to say. Um, I think, you know, if you'd if you'd ask me in the winter time, and in June and July last year, how I felt, I felt very pessimistic because I knew we'd be dealing with another wave. But at this point, it's harder to say. I think, you know, I'd love to see vaccines be more accepted by the general community because that's the best way that that protects our immunosuppressed populations. Um, the more people in the community that got vaccinated, the more our own, um, our own selves and our own communities that we that I deal with the least are protected from from COVID. But there's still a lot that are not getting vaccinated around the country. I mean, Seattle's different. We're you know over eighty percent vaccinated within the city, um, who are you know um, of age to be vaccinated. And I think we're you know we did see the FDA approve um, kids vaccines this past week. And so the expectation is after ACIP votes that younger children have access or school-age children that may further help to limit um, COVID exposures. But you know, COVID's been a challenge for many reasons. And one of those is it's not been predictable. In some ways, it makes sense within the infectious disease space. I don't think any of us were surprised that there were unique variants in the different parts of the world where they developed. But I think we just don't know what's going to happen over the next few months. And I I think it's when people ask me to sort of pull up my crystal ball and say what I think is going to happen. I I really don't know. I think the winter is going to be more cases, but it may not be as much as the prior winter. Uh, But, you know, I I think every time I've tried to predict and think things are right, I've been pretty close to being on target. But this is the first time that I'm not not really sure. I really don't know what 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 it's going to what the next year is going to going to going to mean, but I am somewhat optimistic that by the time we get to 2022, that things are going to get to a, a more stable process that um, we hopefully will still be having cases. There'll still be risk every year. We're still going to have cases for a while, but we'll start to see a, you know, a decline in this, uh, in this over time, but it, it's really hard, hard to predict what the future looks like. Cause this, this has been a really, really challenging disease.
1: Speaking of vaccines, have you heard anything about the fourth booster shot for immunocompromised patients? Yeah. What do you think of that? Yeah,
2: it was just, (laughs) the CDC just posted it um, on Thursday, I believe. I'm not really sure. um, I honestly don't know the data to support that fourth dose. Uh, I've been looking for it so that they must have data that they've been collecting or groups that they've reviewed that potentially talk about this. But I think a colleague um, who works with me described this really well, and I think this is probably the way for people to think about it and for transplant communities to think about it and immunosuppressed populations is that in the standard population, three doses will, it will certainly become, um, I think, the routine. And so two-dose vaccines, um followed by a third dose six months later. So if it's Pfizer, it's Pfizer and then you know three weeks later in second dose, and then the follow-up would be six months later. If it's Moderna, you'd get a dose, and then twenty-eight days later a second dose, and then um, six months after that second dose, you'd get a you'd get your boost. Um, what it will be for immune suppressed patients is instead of saying the initial series is going to be two, it feels like the initial series will be three. So it'll be two doses followed by a third dose um, 28 days later, and then an additional fourth dose six months later. So if you think about it in the sense that a general person is going to get two and then a, and then that third dose later... Then the, then the immunosuppressed population is going to get three followed by a boost. So I think that makes it easiest. It just sort of makes the process easier to think through. Um, but the larger question that I don't know the answer to is where's the data that support that? I haven't seen it and I review a lot of the vaccine data. Um, but I just I just don't know. So I'll be curious to see what more information comes out of that space. But I think that sort of, if you think about it in the sense that it's just a different vaccine approach, then it makes more sense. So, you know, a lot of solid organ transplant recipients, as an example, receive high-dose flu vaccine because there's data that it works better in that population. So it may be that you're just offering a different vaccination strategy for the immunosuppressed population because it's felt like they don't respond as well to a standard dose. And then in addition, instead of that, you know, that two dose, you have a three dose regimen, then the rest of it would be the same. So it'd be more consistent across, across. And I think that's important because something like Moderna where you're getting in the initial series, you get two doses of a hundred micrograms, which is the original vaccine followed by a third dose of a hundred micrograms. And then your booster is half that dose. So for the general public, you get two of the higher dose, 100 100 milligrams, followed by that boost. It just clarifies what that third boost is for immunosuppressed patients as well. And I I think that's important because there's been a lot of confusion about boosters, third shots, etc. But I think this maybe over time will help clarify that for people who are addressing this who haven't been vaccinated yet.
0: Yeah, this is all such good information. And I think our Listeners, whether they're in medicine or just general public or immunocompromised, are really going to appreciate you breaking it down like this. Uh, This next question, um, given your knowledge currently on the vaccines, if people Mm -hmm. were wondering Mm -hmm. about vaccinating their young kids, age 5 to 11, would you recommend they go ahead and get vaccinated? Well, first, it's not been fully approved yet. The FDA has voted and true, um, true.
2: The, FDA, the FDA has approved. ACIP will vote um, next week. So this in this coming week, the key will be what groups are they promoting or what do they um, suggest as the groups who should be vaccinated in that 5 to 11 group? Um, I think, you know, from from my perspective, I think kids are at risk for developing severe complications. So it is not as common. And so children in that situation are, at, are, you know, much less risk than the general, if it was a 70-year-old or a 60-year-old adult, as an example, for developing complications. But there are children that have developed severe complications and died. And some of those um, children have not had otherwise um, health conditions that would suggest they would be at high risk. So I think in certain situations, I think this, at the moment, um, since there isn't, you know, more data around this. I think you need the opportunity for families who decide they want to make this decision to protect their children um, to do it. And so I think it's a little early for mandates in the sense that if you're in a situation where children um, are forced to get vaccinated to go back to school, I I think that data may come as it's being used more and more and there's more safety data. I think that there is a potential that that will be a decision that that um, municipalities and states make, but at least in the short term, I think having the freedom to make the choice to do this is important. And right now, if you think about this, you know a thirty-five-year-old who goes through a kidney transplant is fully able to get vaccinated post-kidney transplant, but a six-year-old who does isn't, and so being able to offer the most immunosuppressed populations, including kids, um, the ability to get vaccinated is really important. And additionally within that, if you have a household member, you know, that child who is high risk and they have younger children in that household, it's wonderful to know that you can vaccinate everyone in that household and protect them. I think the vaccine looks very safe according to the data we've seen. I'm not really worried about side effects, but I think you know it'll be great to have more data the studies um, that were used by Pfizer to approve to move forward were, you know, about some are a little bit over 2,000 pediatric patients. And so I think additional data will be great. but I, but I think, you know, it, it's really a personal decision at this point in time for, for families to do that. But I love the idea that anyone who does want to get vaccinated can, and I certainly am encouraging um, friends and family to get it once it becomes available and if it becomes available for, for their family members. Great. I I will will point out also that I I will point out really quickly that most of the pediatricians that I know are just ecstatic that this is available because they have been very frustrated that um, children have had not had access to this, and so um, bridging that gap around access is going to be important. So I, I wish we'd done these studies earlier in the process because it would be great to have this, but this is typically what happens with pediatric vaccines is. If it's not a pediatric-specific vaccine, they're often studied later. Uh, But I think it's going to be really important. And I think it's going to be an important piece to getting the, the, the pandemic under control is to be able to get as many people vaccinated as possible, and that includes children.
0: Yeah, no, again, I think you're giving us such good information that anyone listening can appreciate just your... Uh, take on the vaccines and, and the immunocompromised population. But enough COVID for right now. People hear enough about it mm-hmm. and uh, we'll get to it again at the end when we just answer a listener question. But it is Halloween uh, that we're recording right now. And mm-hmm. although this will come out a day or two after, just a you know fun mm-hmm. question for you. What is the scariest part about being a doctor? I think the scariest part about being a doctor is making a mistake.
2: You know, I think if you are a physician that thinks you're always right, they're the scariest people to work with, I think. <laughs> I prefer to be someone who is always worried I'm going to make a mistake because I think what that does is it makes me more cautious and to spend the time looking up information or asking additional questions or checking labs in the middle of the night. Um when I have trouble sleeping about a patient that I'm taking care of or if it's keeping me up at night, those are the reasons that you know i'm just i'm just i'm just nervous i'm gonna make a mistake that'll hurt somebody and or then i'll miss a diagnosis that will lead to a complication so i think as much as possible um i sort of see it as a as a plus minus in the sense that it it gives me nightmares when i think i might have done something wrong or i think i've made a wrong decision or i have to make a decision that i don't know if that's right or wrong those are the ones that sort of keep me up at night like a like a really bad nightmare would i guess but i i think it also can be a really good place to make sure that. I'm making decisions that are um, the best for the people that I'm taking care of.
0: The stuff only a doctor's nightmares could be made of.
2: <laughs> making them. <laughs> <laughs> but you guys, you guys know exactly what I'm talking about.
0: I <laughs> I'm do.
1: I'm sure Definitely.
0: that's true for both of yeah, you, Yeah, waking too. up
1: at like 3 a.m. and remembering something and like texting whoever's at the hospital to double check always happens.
0: And I'm yelling at you, like, why are you up looking at this? We got it covered, <laughs> but w- we can't help it. <laughs>
2: I was going to say, all of us have been in that situation where we've been, you know, in the middle of the night, you sort of realize something that you've forgotten, or you realize what the diagnosis is, and you call and quickly change, or, you know, you just have that sixth sense that something isn't right, and you check the labs, and you say, oh, I should do something else, and you call the team. Yeah, you just, you can't help yourself, and I think that's the sign of being a good physician.
0: So to counter that, what is your favorite part of being a doctor? I think what I really like is mentoring
2: others. I really enjoy working in an academic environment where I get to train and help others become physicians and become researchers and work in the space where I am. I think that's the thing that brings me the most joy is seeing people be successful, you know, getting a paper published or getting a a grant um, accepted, seeing them go on to become uh, academicians or you know people that work in the community as physicians it's just really exciting to have somebody you know who you've worked with who's a college student who goes on to be uh, to become a you know a, a resident or a, a medical student and, and seeing their success I think that's the most joy I get in, about what I do every day
1: that's a nice answer I really like that I always tell people that one of the best parts about being a doctor is how much you have to incorporate learning into your practice, whether you like it or not. We are mentors to not just the next generation of physicians, but also, you know, to our own patients too sometimes. So it's a, it's a big role to play. It's a good part too.
2: Yeah. And I would say as much as, you know, I, I learned from, you know, all the people who've taught me, I learn a ton from the students I work with and, I always learn from patients. I mean, some of my best studies and research that I've done have come directly from patient care, where I've seen someone and thought, gosh, that doesn't feel right, or I'd like to do that differently, or how can I prevent that? That's led to changes in practice. So I think patients teach us a lot that we, you know, that seems really, you know, cliche, but it's very true. Um, And I think important that the experience in ac- academics and, and even in just medicine in general is never the same any days. So you're always learning.
1: Agreed. Um, I have a fun question. What is your favorite broad spectrum antibiotic choice? Would you rather be vancomycin or vancencefepine?
2: Oh, um, I would choose vancencefepine between the two. But my favorite broad, broad spectrum would probably be, you know, if I have to choose somebody who's really sick. um, in our immunosuppressed population, almost always we would choose meropenem as a primary source because we have a lot more drug resistance in our chronically infected patients or our patients who've seen lots of antibiotics. Um, but I would prefer vanc and cefepime. I think vanc and um, piptazo tends to, be, uh, tends to have a little more kidney toxicity, and that always makes me a little bit nervous as a kidney transplant recipient, so I'm always a little more cautious <laughs> about that.
1: I think that's every ID doctor's nightmare is vanc and then.
0: it's probably true all right steve uh if you're willing to stay on we'd like you to be a part of a Mm -hmm. listener question from uh this one came from our ask me anything on instagram Um, this one is from Mm -hmm. andrea she says as a solid organ transplant recipient um, she's been worried more than ever about getting covid she's been vaxxed three times with moderna but who knows if that'll help much She's asking, what are we doing to stay safe? And what is this all she hears about monoclonal antibodies? Yeah, well, Andrea, thanks for that question. Um, I think a really important one is, you know, what can we do to stay safe?
2: So I sort of think about what I tell my patients and what I do. I'm, I, I just, I live in a cautious world. I'm pragmatic about the best way to protect myself. And so at the moment, um, I still am masking in really public places. So like when I'm walking on the street and I'm walking my dog outside where the air's fresh, when it's not raining in Seattle, um, I will, um, I'll do so without a mask. But when I am going to a grocery store or I am going to a public space, I'm wearing a mask and I prefer if I can to wear a better mask, like a KN95, um, or um, a double-layered mask, like a surgical mask on top of a cloth mask, as an example, Um, or a cloth mask on top of a surgical mask, even better. Um, And that way, at least I know that I'm doing something to protect myself a little bit more if there is somebody in that space who either isn't masked or doesn't wear a great-fitting mask. And it it always ends up being a good thing, because there's always somebody who's got their mask around their chin, talking on their phone, or even right now, there's a lot of young kids that are around and going to school who might be with that parent. And I just it's just another way to protect myself. I really have avoided a lot of places where there's lots of crowding. So I haven't really been to too many restaurants and and things like that to date unless I can eat outside. So I continue to remain cautious about those things. I use a lot of hand gel when I come in, in and out of the house. I have it with me all the time, as every ID, a good ID physician does. But I think, you know, the vaccines um, are good. And so I've made sure that everyone around me is well vaccinated and has received every um, dose that is prescribed at the moment. So um, all those around me have been vaccinated, including all the healthcare workers in my institution have been vaccinated. And all of the people who work at our um, cancer center have been vaccinated. So I know that I'm working in an environment that's very safe, um, that helps to prevent um, potential transmission. And then I have, you know, sort of in my back pocket, this idea that let's say I do develop COVID because it is possible our ability to respond to vaccines is less than the general public. And it's possible that even with three doses, um, potentially a fourth in my future, um, that I may not have responded as well to, to the vaccine as as my colleagues have. And if I haven't and I do get COVID, I know that the vaccine is going to help prevent me from going on to developing severe complications but if it does happen, I still, um, if possible, and it was available, would um, try to get a monoclonal antibody. And the monoclonal antibodies are really valuable because they provide an extra layer of protection. And there's data in high-risk populations as well, The gen- generally high-risk patients, people who are more at risk for going on to develop complications from COVID that the monoclonal antibodies can provide additional protection from the need to go to the hospital or to die from COVID. And the way they're used is early in the symptoms. Once you get diagnosed, you wanna reach out and identify a place where you could get a monoclonal. And they're given two ways. One can be given IV. The other can be given as a subcutaneous infusion, just right into the skin. They're really easy to do in most situations. It usually takes less than an hour to get a dose. And the advantage is it's sort of like filling your body with lots of antibodies to protect and cover that virus. And so what these antibodies do is they attach to that spike protein, which is what the vaccine is really targeting. And by covering them with these these created um, antibodies, um, they don't allow the virus to attach to cells and then replicate itself because they... Cover all of that spike protein, which is necessary for it to enter a cell, and so that sort of steric influence, where it can't actually attach to a cell, helps to prevent the virus from replicating, and and that's really important in terms of um, disease manifestation. So if you can prevent the virus from replicating, and you can mimic what the antibodies do in somebody who has a good immune response, then and it can prevent you from getting uh, sicker. So I think that's what I do. If I if I knew I was positive and what I what I would do is I would reach out to the local institutions I know well, and I would get a dose of the monoclonal antibody to provide me additional protection. If I did, if I did become positive, I'd be very disappointed um, because I really don't want to get COVID. Um, but I think it's also entirely possible that many of us will at some point in time. The key is if you're going to get infected, make sure that you're fully vaccinated before that happens. And I would not, in any way, recommend it. Um, so whatever you can do to prevent getting infected is super important. And still taking those small steps, like masking up and avoiding big crowds, et cetera, can be really helpful in in helping uh, a transplant recipient be cautious and and to prevent from getting prevent themselves from getting infected.
0: I think one of the biggest things in medicine is knowing your limitations. And that is exactly why I saved this listener question for when we had you on, because your <laughs> response in terms of monoclonal antibodies, you Was know, would much, blow, better, than much better than what me and Aline would have probably given,
2: <laughs> but I,
1: think so much. well, I
2: think it's important, I, but I, yeah, I, but I do think it's important that, you know, if you do, if you are an suppressed patient and you do all of covid Make sure you call and see if it's available for you locally. And and there are websites you can go to. Um, Health and Human Services, if you look up Health and Human Services and monoclonal, can tell you of places that are local in your area that might have monoclonals available, even if you aren't in a big city. And for those of you who div- do live in big cities and can talk to your transplant teams, um, talk to them in advance and find out where you would need to go or how it would be possible to get a monoclonal if you needed one. It's just a good thing to have in your back pocket in advance.
0: Agreed. And, you know, just to echo what Steve was saying, I follow the same type of lifestyle as him. If I'm outside walking, I don't really wear a mask, but I still am wearing a mask in grocery stores and things like that, even when, you know, it's not mandated at this point um, where I live in Connecticut. And, you know, everyone around me as well is also fully vaccinated so Steve, before we let you go, is there any th- um, thing you wanted to give a shout out to or promote while we have you here? my I think I would just take a
2: moment to thank you guys both for doing this. It's great. I would also say that I really want everyone who's listening to this to remember how important donate life is and it, that all of us who are in the situation on this call today are here because either someone has been willing to donate an organ to us or Um, have been in a situation where someone who has lost their life has been willing to donate their organs to to save someone else. And it's an incredibly valuable gift. And I promise you that each of us on this call today takes a lot of time and thinking about how we can continue to pay that forward. And that there are three physicians who work and and take care of patients every day because um, people have been generous in that way. And um, if you aren't an organ donor, please consider it. Think about how important it is. You can save a life multiple lives. Um, and it's a it's a wonderful opportunity to to give back. And I think we're also grateful to those who've who've donated to us.
1: We're very grateful. Remember, you can always register at registerme dot org if you're in America.
0: Definitely. That's an amazing shout out and um, plug to have to end the show. And thank you so much, Steve, for coming on with us today. I think you gave such valuable information that hopefully, you know, anyone who listens um, is going to be grateful for, for your answers.
1: Thank you, Steve. Okay.
0: Yeah. And thanks so much for having me, guys. Thank you again to Dr. Steve Pergam uh, for joining us today. Uh, Again, I thought he was such an excellent guest. Uh, He gave such good information, not only for the listeners, but for myself as well. Um, And thank you again to everyone who listened. Uh, We'll be back again soon with another episode. So please stick with us.
1: Yeah, you can... um follow us on Instagram at both sides of the stethoscope or Twitter at both sides of the stethoscope. Feel free to email us too. That's both sides of the stethoscope at gmail.com. And you can message us on any of those platforms if you have any questions or if you have any thoughts about uh, who we should bring on to the show. So we'll see you guys next week.
0: Definitely. And keep the questions coming. We love answering them at the end of each episode. Take care.